if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to end up in 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34. If you didn't know, there's, there's four books in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, that cover a lot of the same information. They were written by different people from different perspectives. Uh, 1 and 2 Kings covers a lot more of the political aspect of things, the military aspect of things, and 1 and 2 Chronicles has a lot of the same characters, but looking at it from a, a uh, slightly more spiritual, or through a slightly more spiritual lens. Uh, so we're going to land there in 2 Chronicles 34. Um, it's on page 385 in my Bible. Uh, it might be in yours or it might not. <clears throat> uh, so last week we talked about uh, King Hezekiah. right? And Hezekiah was a good king. Um, he still fell into the trap of sin uh, eventually, but by and large he was a man who sought to honor God in what he did. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, did not. He was, not a, uh, he was not a good king. Uh, he led uh, Judah into idolatry and was eventually taken captive by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came and they took him captive. And in doing so, they fulfilled the prophecy that had been made to Hezekiah. Right? Hezekiah had been told in 2 Kings uh, 20 that some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So what was told to Hezekiah, God said, this will happen, and then it happened. Um, you can see a pattern, right, as, as, we, as we work through scripture. When God says that something is going to happen, it ends up happening. Um, and uh, so after some time, he ended up um, humbling himself, repenting, and was released. And so he returned to Judah. And his son, Amon, followed in his footsteps. Idolatry, evil, and ended up being killed by some of his servants. Uh, and those servants then turned around and placed his son, Josiah, on the throne. Josiah was eight. How many eight-year-olds do you know that are fit to rule a country? I know one eight-year-old extremely well. And he is not quite fit to rule himself at this point. Uh, but Josiah was, God's hand was on Josiah. Uh, and we see this in Second Chronicles 34 when we start to read. Uh, it says in, in verse 2 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So God had his hand on this boy to give him the wisdom and the skills that he needed to be able to maybe not navigate all of the political complexities, right? But he gave him a heart that followed after God. And so he ended up going to work. Um, picking back up in verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved in metal images. So, this, so the problem of God's people has always been idolatry, that worship of something other than God. Um, and repentance of that idolatry all throughout time has always had to begin with the dismantling, with the tearing down of those idols, either voluntarily or involuntarily. 
And so Josiah's heart begins in the right place. And the first major thing that he does is he begins to act on that. He takes that right orientation of his heart and he begins tearing down all of the idols, all of the false altars, all of these things that his people worshipped all throughout the country. Uh, And he even ended up carrying that work into Israel, right? The northern kingdom. You remember that the kingdoms had been separated for, for years. And he ended up going into the northern kingdom after they had been conquered and, and basically bringing them back into uh, the fold to a certain extent. Uh, now, after a few years go by, 18 years to be exact, uh, he's 26 years old and he begins to make repairs to the temple. He's torn down all of these idols. He's removed all of the false gods that they had worshipped. And he says, this is how we're going to worship instead. We're going to return to, um, to the temple and worship God there. And so he, he starts to spend some money to get the temple cleaned out. And as they're doing that, they find a book. They find a book. They find a copy of the law that had been given to Moses. So apparently, to this point, they had just been working off of tradition. Right? They didn't have... They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the written word. They were just going off of what they could, what they could remember. Um, and if any of you are like me, going off of what I can remember is a surefire way to get it wrong, right? I can remember two things. I can remember three, thing, three things. One of them has got to be brief. Um, so I can only remember about two things at a time. And so what had happened is there were things that they had forgotten. There were things that they had neglected. There were things that they had left behind. And so the king has this book read in public, in his court, so that they can see what it says. And they read it. It says in um, verse 19 uh, that when he heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. What he heard there, what he read there, cut him to the heart. So he sends his servants to inquire of a prophet. It says in verse 21, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, to do according to all that is written in this book. So he reads the law, he reads the word of God, and he sees the requirements that a just and holy and good and perfect God has placed on them with the terms of this covenant. They were summed up in Deuteronomy 30, in verse 15, when he says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord that I've commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So he sees the law. He sees what the terms of this covenant between God and his people were. And he sees their failure. 
their abject, utter failure to uphold it. He sees his sin. He sees his country's sin. And he sees the coming consequences of this sin. And he sees that he and his people deserve God's wrath because of their failure to keep this covenant that he had made with them in the wilderness. And so his people find this prophet, a woman named Huldah, and and they ask her, are are we reading this right? Are we understanding this right? Uh, And so picking up in verse uh, 24, Huldah responds to the, the messengers from the king. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But, but, to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought word, they brought back word to the king. So she says, yes, yes, you are reading it right. And yes, judgment is coming. Because they violated the terms of the covenant, because they rebelled against God and worshipped other things, wrath was going to be poured out on this nation. You have not honored this covenant. And so God will honor his promise to judge you in accordance with your sin. But, 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 she says to Josiah, but, Because you have humbled yourself, because you have repented, and because you have led your people and taught them to do the same, this judgment will not come while you are alive. Picking up in in verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. So Josiah's personal repentance here led the way for a national repentance where the entire nation was turned back away from their idolatry to follow and to worship God. This is what was envisioned back in Deuteronomy 17 when God first gave 
the pattern for the kingship. This is what he had in mind. A king who would be responsible not for the military power of the nation, not for the economic fortunes of a nation, but a king who would be responsible for leading his people in a right love of God and a right love of neighbor and a trust in God for all of the other things. Now, one of the ways that... um, that Josiah led his people in this repentance was in the observance of the Passover. So if you remember back in Exodus 12, when God is bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he he demonstrates his power over Pharaoh and over Egypt by sending all of these plagues. And Israel was protected from them. um, And protected specifically from that very last plague, the death of every firstborn by observing this Passover ritual where they took the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb and they spread that blood on the wood of the doorpost in atonement for the sins of those who dwelt in that house. And they were told when they did this the very first time, what you are doing today, you need to repeat and you need to remember every single year how God has redeemed you out of slavery here in Egypt. Every year they were supposed to have a ritual reenactment of this Passover to to remember and help them pass on that memory to their children. But somewhere along the way, somewhere after Samuel, it had fallen into neglect. They had failed to remember. And so Josiah reinstitutes this observance. He calls all of Israel to Jerusalem for this festival. And not only does he does he call them to this He also provides all of the sacrifices, all of the things that they require to do it right. He gives them. They are completely without excuse. And it says in in 2 Chronicles 35 that no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. They did it right. They did it with their whole hearts. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. So how can you tell true repentance? True repentance will always demonstrate itself in changed behavior. Because there would have been a temptation here, right? This was a big deal. This was a a, a week of no work. This was 30,000 plus animals who needed to be rounded up and brought in and sacrificed according to the the direction of God. There would have been a a, a strong temptation here, right? To say, well, it's too late to get it done this year. We'll, We'll do it next year and we'll make sure that we do it right. But the time frame for repentance is always right now. Every single moment that we spend tolerating our sin, dwelling in our sin, that is a moment when we are hardening our hearts, when we are hardening ourselves to God. Every moment that we continue to say, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. I'm I'm all right. God's not that serious about it. Every moment that we continue to do that is a moment that we continue to hold ourselves up as the ultimate arbiter of right 
and of wrong, as divine judge, rather than submitting to God. And friends, that is dangerous. That is dangerous when we do that. Because that is, that is idolatry. That is not worship of a statue. That is worship of ourselves as God. And also, note that Josiah didn't just change his behavior, but he sought out accountability for that change. He didn't just say, I'm going I'm, I'm to do better about this. I'm going to do better. But he made a commitment. He made a covenant to keep the law in front of and with his whole country. So if he backed out, if he failed in this, everybody is going to know. And this is, this is ultimately one of the things that we try to accomplish with church membership, right? That is a formal arrangement where the members of this church are committing to one another. We want, we want to follow God with our whole hearts and we want you, I want you and you want me to keep us accountable, to do that, to hold our feet to the fire, to call us out when we have strayed. And that's what Josiah was accomplishing here. He was saying, we are all in this together. We are all committing ourselves wholeheartedly to follow God, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And lastly, when his sin was exposed... He repented, not just a little, but he repented with his whole heart. And when the sin of his country was exposed, he led them in wholehearted repentance. And in doing so, he demonstrated the same heart that his father David had. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, however, for Josiah... As for Hezekiah, those four traps were always present in his life. Uh, out of Deuteronomy 17, we, we saw four general areas that leaders fall. Power, sex, money, pride. Those are the four big traps that we've seen in these kings' lives. And so about five years later, when, uh, when he's about 40 years old, Josiah decides to get involved in geopolitics. Right? He decides that he's going to start having an influence on what's going on in the world. And we have a, oh good, that's bigger this week. Perfect. Uh, so we have Israel sort of in the middle. We have Egypt down to the south and the Assyrians up to the north. Uh, and Babylon was attacking the Assyrians. And the Assyrians went and bought mercenaries basically from Egypt. And so there's this army coming up from Egypt to go and help the Assyrians. Well... Right in between the two is this poor little nation of Israel. And uh, Josiah is not inclined to let the, uh, the Egyptians just kind of march through his country. Uh, and he may have been try trying to win some favor with the Babylonians. And so he tries to intervene. He tries to get in and, and play politics. And in doing so, he fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never to get involved in a land war in Asia. Uh, and so he tries to block Egypt from going to Assyria's aid. And he brings his army to the plain uh, of Megiddo, which plays a part both in the uh, past and in the future 
We know it better as the place of Armageddon. Uh, and they have this, they have this confrontation. Uh, and interestingly enough, there is, um, this is one of those places that uh, modern archaeology lines up perfectly with, uh, with the Bible. We have archaeological evidence that this confrontation took place. Um, and Pharaoh sends a message to Josiah. Uh, and this is Second Chronicles 35, 21. Uh, he sent a message to him saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. So Pharaoh says to Josiah, Let me through. I'm on the Lord's business here. I don't have any issue with you. I don't want to make any trouble with you. I'm headed someplace else. Just let me pass. Verse 22, nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho, that's the Pharaoh, from the mouth of God, but he came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. The king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. So he essentially went and stuck his nose where it didn't belong, in opposition to the instructions that God gave Pharaoh. And he was killed, and his army was defeated for his sin. Power, sex, money, pride. Those are the four traps. Josiah fell into the trap of power. He thought that he needed to exert his military strength and his political savvy to help keep Judah safe. He thought, to paraphrase Mao, that power grew from the tip of a spear rather than from the hand of God. But it's never been, it's never been military might that God has used to preserve and protect his people. It has always been his hands that are at work. And Josiah forgot that. Josiah forgot that, and it cost him his life. So even a good man, even a good king, can slip and fall into one of these traps easily. And that's a caution to us. You know, as we lead at home, at work, in the church, in government, these four traps are always around us. And we need to watch our own hearts and the hearts of those that we put into those positions to be sure that we do not fall into them. So when God led his people into the promised land, he told them what a king should look like and what a king should avoid. He said that a king should know God's word and that king should lead his brothers in following it. And he should avoid those four pits, those four traps, power, pride, money, sex. And the kings who were raised up fell victim to those. We look at Saul, the first king, who looked like a king. He fell victim to the trap of power and of money. And when he was confronted with his sin, and this was the big issue, he was completely unrepentant. He sought to justify himself. He sought to make excuses. He sought to blame others. And so because of his hardened heart, the kingdom was taken away from him and given to David. David was a man after God's own heart. 
But he still, like Saul, fell into those traps. He fell into the trap of sex and of power. But David, in contrast to Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, he made good on his repentance. His sin grieved him. He was broken hearted about his sin because, because he was a man after God's own heart. And so with David, as with all who turned to God in repentance and faith, he was forgiven of his sins and washed clean. His son Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, but his wisdom but his wisdom did not help him to completely avoid those traps. God said in Deuteronomy 17, don't take many wives or they will turn your heart away. Solomon took many wives and it turned his heart away. He turned away to worship idols. And so because of his sin, the kingdom would be split and the largest part would be given to somebody else. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, fell victim to pride. He thought that the people were there to serve him rather than he being there to serve the people. And so the northern kingdom broke away and was given to Jeroboam. Jeroboam fell victim to power. He thought that it was more important that he keep his people from going to Jerusalem than it was for them to worship God on God's terms. We looked at Ahab in that northern kingdom, how his heart was turned away by his wife, into idolatry. But even as evil as Ahab was, he was brought to a place, God led him to a place of repentance, where his heart was broken by his sin. Hezekiah, we talked about last week, the king of Judah, he was a good man. He followed God to the very best of his ability. But he fell victim to pride. He was, pride. he was proud and boastful of all of the riches of his kingdom and the beauty of the temple. His heart took a good thing that was given to him by God as a blessing. And he elevated it to the place where he was worshiping it rather than worshiping God. Josiah, today, he was a good man. But he thought that he needed to play politics to be able to get ahead, to be able to play power, to get ahead. And he fell into that trap. Each one of these kings succeeded in some way, at some point in their lives. But on the other hand, at some point in their lives, they failed. Either in their public policy or in their private lives, they failed. Because they each had the same thing that we have a weakness of the flesh, that tendency towards sin. It was unique to each one of them. Right? Each one of these people had their own flaws, their own weaknesses. They fell into these traps in a different way. But it's the same weakness. It's the same root. That, sin, that sinful bent. And so they paid they paid for they, their sin. They paid private prices for their public sin. They paid public prices for their private sin. But God continued to rule through them, using even their failures to accomplish his purpose. 
It says in Daniel 2 of God that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And in Proverbs 21, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So ultimately, the, the heart, and the actions, the power of a king, those are all secondary powers. They are all subject to the rule of God and subject to change when he sees fit. Now, sometimes God blesses people with good kings, kings that have his hands of, of grace and of mercy guiding them throughout their lives. And sometimes, as we saw last week and, and this week especially, sometimes God removes his hand from their lives. And when that happens, these kings inevitably reveal the sin that exists in their heart. Because these kings are only good insofar as they are submitting themselves to the hand of God and reflecting his character to their people. And sometimes, sometimes he uses bad kings. Sometimes he uses kings that he has allowed to go after the sin that their heart desires. But even, even those kings, when we look at them, we call them bad in acknowledgement that there is a standard by which we judge a good king. But ultimately, his power, right, God's power and his plan and his purpose are not thwarted by these kings, but he guides them and directs them to accomplish his work. So when Saul or when Ahab came to power, God knew the condition of their hearts. He knew how they would turn out. He wasn't sitting there stewing and fretting and worrying about what was going to happen. He has always had. He always has and he will always have these kings under his control. They do not surprise him. They do not throw him off. And I think that for me, this is one of the, this is one of the things that is most encouraging in this season. Especially as we look at at the upcoming election. Because I think that from where I'm standing, each one of these political parties that we're dealing with today has given itself over to sin of some type. Each candidate has their own unique blend of public policy and personal sins that should disqualify them. However, however, whichever way you vote and whoever wins, God is the one who will use the person who takes the presidency to accomplish his will. Because the president is just a tool in the hand of an almighty God to be picked up, used for a purpose, and returned to its appointed place. I may not trust the tool, but I trust the hand of the one who is wielding that tool. I may not understand the choice of tool that he makes, but I trust him. But I trust that he knows how to use the tool that he has created. I may not see what it is that is being accomplished, but I can trust that his plan is good and his plan is perfect and his plan is intended for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We may see one candidate or another win. 
We may see unrest and uncertainty. We may see riots. We may see anarchy. We may be watching the death of an empire. But God is still in control in the midst of all of these things. And we can trust him. He is still in control and we can trust him. Now the single, the single largest point that we need to see in this whole pattern of, of judges and prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament is this. Even with the best kings, even with the very best kings, they were weakened and they failed because of their sin. But no matter how bad the king was, no matter how badly he screwed up, they were not beyond the reach of God's hand to shape them and mold them as he wanted them. And no matter how good the king was, they were still vulnerable to and fell into the traps of sin that are still common to us today. And so we see all of these kings, we see all of these priests, these prophets, these judges, and we look at them and we say, they may have been good, but we needed something better. We needed a better king. We needed a greater king. And this is the pattern that we see with God at work in this world. We see the requirement that he has set and we try to meet it according to, to human might, to human wisdom. We try with all of our might and we fail to meet the standard that he has set. The very best that we can do is still stained with sin. But as much as he gives us that requirement, he then turns around and offers us the means to meet it. So he has told us, this is what a truly good king looks like. This is what a perfect king looks like. And then he turns and he offers to us the fulfillment of that. He showed us our inability to produce a perfect king. And then he sent us the perfect king in Jesus Christ. Not just king over a piece of land for a time, but the very king of heaven, ruling over the eternal kingdom of heaven. And we as Christians today are ambassadors of that kingdom to this particular time and this particular place. And we have been called to show and demonstrate the worth and the value of that kingdom to the people around us. Demonstrating the values and the patterns of that kingdom to a world where those patterns and those values have become increasingly foreign. And we are to call people as ambassadors to join that kingdom. To come with us, be a part of this kingdom before the kingdom that they are in falters. Because the human condition is to live in failing, faltering kingdoms. Kingdoms of money, the kingdom of career, the kingdom of self. All of these lesser kingdoms, all of these lesser gods that we worship are failing. And they will one day be cast down as Josiah cast down all of the idols in subservience to the king of kings and the lord of lords. They will be burned up as grass in the fire. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is greater, it is stronger, it is better, because it is founded on the blood of the very Son of God, 
poured out on the cross. Paul wrote of Christ in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, because of all of those things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This kingdom of heaven was founded on the cross. It was founded on weakness to save those who were weak. It was founded on humility to save those who were humble. And he took on himself our frailty, our weakness, our shame, our pain, our sin, and our very death on himself. Paying, paying that sin debt that David that Hezekiah, that Josiah, that you and I have all accrued, but he was not defeated by it. The full weight of our sin, the full weight of my sin would crush me. The full weight of your sin would crush you. But he bore it. He took all of mine and he took all of yours on himself and swallowed it up but he was not crushed by it. He was not crushed by it. It could not defeat him. And so we today, friends, we today worship and serve the Christ, the King triumphant, victorious over sin and over death, seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory forever and ever. And that is the King that we need. That is the King that we have. And that is the King that we will have for eternity. If we will, if we will humble ourselves and worship him in the way that he deserves, placing our faith and our hope in him. And that is what, that is what he calls out. He calls all people everywhere to bow before him. He calls them to turn away from the kingdoms of grass and of straw that they are building. Kingdoms of comfort, kingdom of success, the kingdom of the respect of others, that kingdom of self, we need to turn away from. He calls us to lay down the weapons of sin that we wield in our rebellion against him. Weapons of pride and of arrogance and of anger and of selfishness and of hate, lust, divisions and rivalries, our envy, and our self-centeredness. And he calls us to serve him as ambassadors, proclaiming the coming of his kingdom, submitting ourselves to his rule without reservation and without regret. And in him, in him, friends, we have the king that Israel needed but could never find. In him, we have the king that we long for today. The king who will never leave us or forsake us. The king who is coming again to judge all people. The king who promises to those who love him an eternity with him, healed 
of all of the wounds and the hurt and the scars of this world. The king who will reign forever with us, his adopted brothers and sisters at his side. Those ones who have turned away from their sins and trusted him as their master and their savior, their redeemer and their king. Let's pray together. Father, my rebellion against you is no small thing. I have thought, I have thought that I knew enough. I have thought that I was powerful enough. But God, even that thought was sin, much less the actions that flowed out of that. And so, Father, this morning, anew, God, I repent of my sins. I leave behind the kingdoms of grass and of wood that I have been trying to build on my own. And I turn freshly, God, to you in faith. And I ask God for your mercy that you would forgive me for my rebellion against you and that you would accept, accept me, God, as your subject, as I embrace you as my king. And Father, give me the strength and the grace that I need to be able to follow you as my king every day until my death or until you come again. Father, I thank you for your continued presence with me and with every one of us. And it is in the name of Christ, our eternal King, that I pray. Amen. I'd ask you to stand with me as we close this morning as we sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Aren't you glad that we serve a faithful God? Even when we fail, struggle, he is there to come alongside of us and give us the love and support and wisdom that we need to live in this world today. You join us as we sing the first and the last verses.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Thank you.